Hello, you're listening to a service from the Hill United Presbyterian Church in Butler, PA. We're located at 501 2nd Street near the hospital. We encourage you to attend a service and experience the message and our hospitality in person. Today's sermon was recorded on February 9th, 2020, and was presented and written by Reverend Ellie Johns Kelly. This recording was done for archive and general purposes, and our first reading comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Let us listen in to the word of the Lord. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no longer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let's listen in on the service. Our second lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. So I often tell people, I am a preacher's kid, a preacher's niece, the granddaughter of Presbyterian elders, and clearly I'm a clergy person myself. I've been ordained it will be 20 years come this June. And there was never a time in my life that I did not know that I too am a beloved child of God. I'm so very thankful for the saints that went before the family that I know, telling them the story of God's love, that one day I could hear it for myself and know deep inside that I am a beloved child of God and part of God's family. As a preacher's kid, you can imagine there are a lot of memories that go with growing up in the church. Mostly good, don't worry. One memory, though, that stands out above all others is that of Christmas Eve services come and gone. And central to those events was the moment that the light of the world entered our dark and quieted sanctuary. My dad would have had just doused the pulpit light as a cue to the ushers to turn the lights out across the sanctuary. And then in the back corner, we had a parlor back there. Out of that door would appear one of our confirmation kids holding a soul candle representing Christ breaking breaking into the world. 
We called that young person the light of the world. And just as that door opened and that young person appeared, you would hear a solo voice. It was my dad, not singing, luckily he doesn't sing well. But his was the lone voice as he began reciting the beginning of John. Oh, and I can hear his big, booming voice in my head now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Oh, they had the timing just right. When my dad would finish that recitation, the light of the world would be at the center of our chancel, right at the base of the steps. And the ushers would have followed in behind that young person, and that young person would reach out, extending that light to my dad, then to the liturgists, and then proceed up to our choir loft to light the first person in each row of the choir. My dad would extend out his hand to those ushers, uttering the words, Christ is born, pass it on. They would share that same phrase with one another as they pass that light. And then they'd disperse through our aisle. And they'd begin lighting the first person in each pew. And we would hear that murmuring over and over again. Christ is born. Pass it on. We went from pitch black nothingness to a vibrant light that gave warmth and sparkled. Each of us was able to see that we, too, carry the light of Christ. But more importantly, we have the responsibility to share it. The question for us today is how is it can we ensure that the light continues to spread throughout our community, throughout the region, throughout this nation and the world, not just today, but for generations to come? Now, I love this passage from John because it frames for us who Jesus the Christ was. The word was in the beginning. Christ was always part of the Godhead. And God's rich legacy of love is not one we simply see in the Christian scripture alone, but throughout all of scripture, Hebrew and Christian. Another favorite passage of mine is this one from Jeremiah. My dad's mentor, the Reverend Dr. Bill Orr, who's also the mentor of a much more famous Presbyterian, Mr. Rogers. Um, But Bill Orr used to describe this as the passage about divine amnesia. Now, as a preacher's kid, it's really good to hear about divine amnesia. And I always wished my dad practiced it even more. But what's amazing is we have a God who practices divine amnesia. A God who remembers our sins no more. And throughout Hebrew scripture, 
we see God's legacy of love, God creating the world, creating humanity, and never giving up on us. God always seeks on humanity being in relationship with God's self. When there is brokenness, when humanity turns away, God never gives up. God calls us back again and again and again, uttering those words, I will remember your sins no more. Now, I don't always quote Pittsburgh folks. Don't worry. Uh, I like many of our other seminaries. It just happens the two people I'm quoting today are guys who graduated from, or who taught at Pittsburgh. Um, but there's a professor there now by the name of Edwin Vandriel. And he uses a big term that I love. Now, I've gotten advice from my dad over the years, time and again, and one thing he regularly tells me is do not throw big words at the session and certainly don't do it to the congregation. And you might say to Lee, please don't have her back in the pulpit again. <laughs> but maybe it will give you something to talk about at lunch. I want you to say this with me. It's a big term. Supralapsarian theology. Supralapsarian theology. I don't expect you to remember it. But supralapsarian theology is a fancy way of saying that Jesus was not God's last-ditch effort to save the world from the problem of sin. Jesus wasn't God's Hail Mary because the world was messed up. But Jesus was in the beginning. God's intention was always to become human at some point so that humanity would more fully know and understand this God who desires a relationship with us. And God's legacy is so rich. Our call is to go and tell the story. So I often tell people I am a red hymnal Presbyterian. Do you know what I mean? Do you remember that old Presbyterian hymnal with a Celtic cross on the spine and it just said the hymn book? Do you remember that? It preceded this blue hymnal. And I was born in 74, so that's the hymnal I was born with. Now, to tell you the truth, I do not want to worship at a church who only has that hymnal. But there are favorite old hymns in that red hymnal that aren't in the blue hymnal. Why? Why did they leave out the favorites? Pew racks are only so deep. And the red hymnal came out in 55, and the blue hymnal came out in 90, and there were a lot of marvelous hymns written in between that time. So to make space for the new hymns, they had to let go of some of the oldies, right? Now, the Presbyterian Publishing has figured out how to get around the depth of the pew rack. They came out with a new hymnal. It's called Glory to God. And it has eight, over 800 hymns. And they brought back old beloved hymns from the red hymnal and even the green hymnal of the 1930s. And they did it because they used really thin paper. It's remarkable. It fits in the pew rack. And it has wonderful new hymns written since 90, which seems like not so long ago, but really was, right? But one of those favorite hymns of mine from the Red Hymnal that's now in glory to God is the hymn, I Love to Tell the Story. Do you know it? 
If you do, sing it with me. I love to tell the story of amazing things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. Let my theme. I sing this every week and I just screwed it up. I'm sorry. The, I'm conflating two verses in my brain. Uh, Twill be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I, I am so sorry. I just bombed that. But you know the hymn I'm talking about, right? Friends, I sing this twice a month. I should be able to sing it, so I'm sorry. I've thrown it off. But that hymn that I love so well that I think you could have kept singing had I not screwed it up is a wonderful testament about the importance of telling the story, sharing that story with others. And it's a, a wonderful model as we think about stewardship and we ask people to think about how they use their time, talent, and resource and the whole reason about why we engage in stewardship. It's not because we need these things, but it's because we want to tell a story about God's legacy of love. We want people to know that it is for them too. Now, I am thrilled that you showed up on this cold morning, even though I'm preaching a stewardship sermon. There are some who would elect to sleep in. And even when I talk about legacy, some people think, oh, really, do we have to talk about this? I don't want to think about when I'm gone. But it's really a privilege to talk about how God has changed our lives how being in a community of faith transforms who we are. It helps us to see who God is and to bounce off of each other our questions, our wonders of the world and this marvelous God who created it. So my work at the Presbyterian Foundation is to help individuals and congregations better tell the story to share the good news so it will spread today and long into the future for those generations we know and those generations yet to be imagined so that people will know that the promises of God's love are for them, that they are authentic, that they are real, and that it does transform our lives. Stewardship is simply about telling the story, thinking about how we utter it, and how we use our time, talent, and resources to share it with others. When we show up on Sunday mornings, we do so not to earn marks on the board, counting up how often we've been here, and to earn points into heaven. It doesn't work that way. We cannot earn God's grace and love. It is freely given to all humanity, and with that we say, thanks be to God. But we show up to give praise to God, 
and so we can utter our pro those promises to one another. Sometimes we show up to church and we are broken and we are hurting. We may be living in the dark night of the soul. Life can be hard. But we show up to hear those promises from those next to us in the pew and from your pastor in the pulpit and from your choir and your bell choir, from the liturgist. Because we need to hear those promises today. They may be so familiar, but this may be a day that it just seems impossible where we lack the capacity to believe ourselves and so we show up to hear those told again. And we show up to be the ones uttering those promises because it may be our neighbor sitting next to us who has heard them time and again, but today is the day that they really need to hear them. They need to be embraced by the community of faith. We show up and we see that baptismal font. And we are reminded that God names us and claims us before we could ever name and claim God. And we see that communion table. And we are reminded that Christ is the unseen host and he invites all to come and celebrate together, all of us, with all our beauty and with all of our ugliness, with all of who we are, God welcomes us to that table. We dedicate our time, talent, and resources not to get points into heaven. It doesn't matter how much you get, give to the church. It doesn't get you to heaven. But we give these things because we want to have a community of faith that's going to flourish, that's going to engage in meaningful mission and ministry for the sake of the world. Now, I told you earlier, I am a preacher's kid, a preacher's niece, the granddaughter of Presbyterian elders and ordained 19 and a half years myself. There was never a time I wasn't active in the church and I was probably like the goody-goody preacher's kid. My husband teases me all the time. He calls me a camp kid or a Sunday school kid. He thinks it's funny. I was active in everything growing up. I was on the ushering team. I was in the choir in high school. I was president of your youth group. I taught Bible school while I was home in college. I ended up going to seminary. I thought I was always dedicating myself, and yet when I came of age and started really creating plans, I never took the next step or really claimed the privilege. I was 25 when I was ordained. And when you're ordained, you get to fill out these beneficiary forms for your board of pensions. I was single. Who am I going to leave my pension benefit to? My three siblings, Jenny, Harry, and Shana. Now, you can't leave a fraction of a percent, so it leaves things a little unfair, doesn't it? So I gave Jenny 34% of my pension. Harry and Shana, 33%. 
And I also had life insurance through the Board of Pensions. It seemed like a wise idea so I could pay off my student loans if I died, right? I left Harry 34% because Jenny, as the eldest, always gets the most, right? Jenny and Shana got 33%, meaning Shana, the caboose, got the short end of the stick both times. Now, it never occurred to me that I could support my siblings and also have a legacy, be doing something for the gospel even after my death. I could have done 30, 30, and 30 of my pension to my siblings and 10% to the Presbyterian of Lake Erie that had nurtured me. And here, nearly 20 years later, I'm still a member. And I could have done 30, 30, and 30 of my life insurance and 10% to the theological education fund that I've valued so greatly. Just never thought of it. Fast forward two years. Now, I lived in Pittsburgh. I served at Pittsburgh Seminary for a decade. And I used to go up to Erie twice a week to go race sailboats. And when I was 27, one day I was in Erie, I got a terrible migraine. One of those with an aura but it wasn't my normal aura. I lost my capacity to speak. It was affecting the left side of my brain and words just were not coming out. I had ideas and I couldn't articulate them and I was too chicken to go to the ER, so I went to my doctor. My eyes were not dilating and they immediately sent me to Hammett Hospital. Now I was the typical American. I did not have a will. 50% of Americans die intestate. That means without a will, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania goes through their formula to figure out what happens with your stuff. And not having a will meant I didn't have medical power of attorney either. So by default, my dad, whom I think is an incredible minister, great pastor, he's a hospice chaplain too, he can navigate any tough question with the people he serves was called in because I could not speak. He was being used as my medical power of attorney just by default because I had never named one. Now my dad, who's a great pastor, is horrible when it's his own family. He was a nervous Nelly. He kept telling me, you're not gonna die, you're not gonna die. And I wanted to say, dad, this isn't helpful. So when I was released and they figured out it was just a bad migraine and not a stroke, the first thing I did was call one of my sorority sisters, Susan Montgomery, who is an attorney. And I had her help me craft my will and my medical power of attorney and my living will and my durable power of attorney and all those things. But guess what? This preacher's kid, preacher's niece, granddaughter of Presbyterian elders, Presbyterian minister for two years at this point, never thought about what I could be doing for the sake of the gospel. How might I tell that story after my lifetime? It never occurred to me. Fast forward, I'm serving a church in Warren, Pennsylvania, just up the Allegheny River on the edge of the New York border near the Kinzu Dam, old oil and timber town. There used to be a lot of money in Warren. They still have their own oil refinery there. But a lot of the industry that once existed is long gone. The town in its heyday had 15,000 people and now they're down to less than 9,000. And the churches are shrinking. In 
and all along Market Street next to the manse are these big, marvelous homes with third floor ballrooms. Tells you about the money that existed there once. And as I was serving that church, I went to a workshop with Cliff Christopher, a good United Methodist, teaching about stewardship and plan giving. And I caught him at the lunch break and said to him, Cliff, how do I talk plan giving in a Rust Belt town? How do I talk about it with folks who think that it's only for the wealthy or those without heirs? And well, our wealthy are, have been gone a good 30 years. We have a nice endowment, but we haven't talked plan giving for 20. How do I do this? And he said, Ellie, how many people have you buried since January 1? It was only March, and I had buried 10 people. He suppose, said, suppose this, Ellie, when you got there three years ago, you had actually talked about the novel idea of simply tithing your estate. Now, the average Presbyterian gives 1.9% to the church. If they tithe their estate, that could be the first time they tithe in their lives. Often, planned gifts are the largest gift anyone has ever made. Suppose your folks actually thought about that and claimed that for themselves, wanting to make a difference there in the community of Warren with this congregation. And suppose the only asset they have is a home worth about $100,000. That would be a $10,000 gift for mission and ministry. And you've buried 10 people since January 1, Ellie? What would you do with it? Can you imagine what a congregation could do with gifts like that? Fast forward, a year later, I am in a lawyer's office with my husband. We had been married two years at that point, and we were expecting our first child. We had never crafted a will together, and we thought we'd better do this because I was 39 and a half, and he was 46. We're old parents, right? We gotta have our ducks in the road to protect this child. So before we went to the lawyer's office, we talked about all the details. Our will, who would have guardianship of this child and other potential children, primary, secondary, tertiary, if the first two couldn't or wouldn't, who would be the third person we'd want to care for this child? We talked about medical power of attorney, durable power of attorney, our living will. We're dedicating our bodies to science. Eric does medical research, and so he made sure we put our, in our bodies, or in our will, that our bodies are going to University of Iowa. That might cost a little more. It might really just go to WVU's med school, but we'll see, right? But we figured out all these things in advance. Now remember, I'm a preacher's kid, a preacher's niece, the granddaughter of Presbyterian elders, Presbyterian minister, and I had been working with the foundation for four months at this point, teaching these things to others. And guess what? I never thought about broaching the subject with my husband about what we could do to share the gospel. It just didn't occur to me. And then, as we're sitting in front of the lawyer, laying out all these details in downtown Pittsburgh, all of a sudden, I get an aha moment, and I can only attribute it to the Holy Spirit. And I said, Eric, what do you think if after our bills are paid, if we leave 5% of our estate to the Presby 
Presbyterian Foundation for a permanent endowment fund to support First Presbyterian Church of Warren. Now, I don't advise that you throw this at your spouse in front of the lawyer. We could have been signing very different papers, right? But in that moment, Eric said, very well, then I want our 5% of our state to go to First Christian Church in Cedar Falls, Iowa for the Silver Linings Fund. You see, Eric's dad had died nine years before, at the age of 59, from lung cancer. He was the 11th of 17 children. Same mom, same dad. They had six more after him. He knew poverty. He had worked in a foundry his whole life. Worked for John Deere. Hence the lung cancer. But he was known in his church as the candy man. He was one of those people the little kids could go to and Mr. Kelly always had candy for them. But he was also known by the pastor as someone she could go to when there was a child in need. And she could say, Ralph, we have a kid who doesn't have socks and shoes, doesn't have winter boots, doesn't have a warm coat, and Ralph would stroke a check. When he died, Eric and his mom started this small fund called the Silver Linings Fund so that Ralph's legacy could continue in that congregation. Immediately, when I put out this question to Eric, he knew what he wanted to do, how he would share the message with God's love, extending the same legacy his dad had. Together, we have tithed our state. Our eldest is five and a half. Our youngest is 20 months old. I am 45. He is 52. Many people would say, you two are not spring chickens. Why are you leaving something to the church? You need to care for those girls. And that's right. And we have our retirement. We have life insurance for them. But most importantly, we have a legacy that they will know about, that they will be able to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ has shaped our lives. If we die today, Eric and I, oddly, at our age, each have four more years to pay on our own student loans. We have a mortgage. We have some credit card debt. We're not wealthy people. But that 10% will be a statement. And if we live under our 80s and 90s, it will be a just as significant statement. Probably more money, because we're also saving now. <laughs> but just as significant. Perhaps you have already included the church in your legacy and claimed a legacy, and I thank you for that. But maybe you're like me, and it just never occurred to you how you could continue to share the gospel even after your lifetime. Whatever group you're in, come join us for the luncheon after church today. And consider this, the sanctuary is only partly lit. Will you hold that candle to yourself? Or will you boldly stretch out your arm, uttering those words, Christ is born, pass it on. Amen. Thank you and have a great week.